what is that world, that brighter, better world that we're building? What does that look like and feel like to you? Total liberation, which means that if you look at the broken world today, and if you look at all the people who are being hurt、uh, by the way the world is structured today, the the way we structure our political system, our economic system, our energy system, our housing system, our transportation system, our media, our education, our healthcare—you know—look at every facet of our lives. Look at who is being harmed by it, and. The ideal world that I would imagine is one where number one, at a bare minimum, those harms all stop. Number two, that they are actually undone. So not just do the harms stop, but the damage that's already done is undone, and the people who have been harmed are made whole. And this is not about revenge. This is not about Punishing the people who've done the harm, but it is about、uh, the people who've done the harm actually compensating those who they've harmed.、Uh, you could even call that a basic restorative justice principle. And finally, that all of this, this entire process, is actually not imposed from the top down,、uh, but. Is actually determined by the people on the ground who have been harmed. That they get to determine、uh, the end of the harm and the way they are compensated.、Uh, and you know, with all of these things, we are going to get a significantly healed world, healed from.、Uh, Honestly, the sickness that we have in the world today, and and the sickness is、uh, very much, you know, economic and political and environmental, but it's also ultimately a sickness of the mind and the soul because, obviously, living in such a damaged world, we cannot help but be affected by it on a very deep emotional and spiritual level. The powers with the people, then the people must be bold. Fight to liberate the soil while we liberate our souls. Liberate the resource, change the story that's been told. We sell. Welcome to Stories from Home, moving the just transition, and I'm your host, Keenan Rhodes. The world needs healing, and for us to heal the world, we need to also heal ourselves and change our way of being. Last episode, we talked mostly about false solutions to climate change, and also featured how organizers like Doria from Urban Tilth in Richmond, California, and Chris from Ironbound Community Corporation in Newark, New Jersey, are helping create real ones—the solutions that center climate justice. Today, we get into what the real solutions can look like on the ground, with leaders you've already met in previous episodes and new ones. It's going to take us all being in formation, or at least you know the ninety-nine percent of us to be in formation, to be able to turn the ship around、um, to set us on a new course. Even folks who care about climate change and recognize that it's one of the most urgent issues of today, like some of the world leaders at the UN Climate Change Conference or mainstream environmental organizations, don't understand why we not only have to focus on climate justice solutions. 
but to center them at the core of how we're going to weather this climate emergency. So, how do we do that? On Stories from Home, we censor people and stories, because who are we solving the climate crisis for, if not for us, all of us, and all Mother Earth's creatures, and not at the expense of any one of us? And that's why organizers know we can't focus on just the science part, or just the conservation, or just the economics of carbon production. We must tackle the justice part, the unsustainability of living as we do, of treating each other the way we do, of relating to the earth the way we do, the destructive impacts of profit over people that we've gotten used to. That aha moment for Basav Sin, the Climate Justice Project Director at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., tragically was an environmental disaster caused by a multinational corporation. When I was a kid, a school kid, living in India, the year was 1984. And there was a horrific toxic gas leak in a city called Bhopal in India, which remains to this day the worst toxic disaster in human history. Over the years, some 20,000 people have died because of long-term effects from that poisoning. It's been reported since that at least half a million people have health issues from exposure to toxins leaked in the disaster. Over 45 tons of methyl isocyanate, MIC for short, along with other toxins, leaked into the air and were carried to surrounding communities by wind. To this day, the groundwater and soil in that area remain contaminated. The company that was responsible for it was a U.S. multinational corporation called Union Carbide, which does not even exist anymore. It's been uh, taken over by Dow Chemicals. But anyway, I remember as a school kid in India, learning about this and being horrified on so many dimensions. And it's, you know, opening my eyes to so many things at the same time. First of all, the inequality of the global economic and political order. The fact that this huge corporation in the world's wealthiest and most powerful country could get away with doing something like this with exactly zero consequences to itself. Uh, what did it say about the lives of the people who died and why were they devalued so much? And, you know, very quickly I realized it had to do with inequalities between nation states, you know, rich countries versus poor countries. It had to do with race. It had to do with histories of colonialism as to why some part, parts of the world are wealthy and others are poor. It had to do with, honestly, how the industrial system that we have created and that generates so much wealth for some people literally condemns others to live in sacrifice zones and get poisoned. So, even as a school kid, I started thinking about the very questions in life that have motivated the work I do today. We know we need to keep centering justice because that's the piece that often gets lost. Without justice, none of our solutions to climate change, however scientific, will last because globally, the wealthy and powerful will continue to sacrifice people with less power and wealth in the name of growth. 
Is that really worth sustaining? How do we design just transition solutions? We can ask four questions Bostov shared in the last episode to ID false solutions. When it comes to making policy, these questions seem more relevant than ever. One, what is the problem the solution is actually trying to solve? Two, whose interests do the solutions serve? Three, who is calling for these solutions and who is backing them? And four, whose interests are not taken into account and who is potentially harmed by these so-called solutions? When it comes to the climate emergency we are living in today, the harm that has impacted so many of us comes from the extractive dig, burn, and dump economy. Our North Star is to fix it at the source by leaving fossil fuels in the ground. But how we do that is extremely important because we don't want to repeat the models of yesterday we've seen in oil and gas industries, which would continue to harm our communities. Frontline communities tell us we have to be creative and employ innovative ideas. I'm learning a lot of the things that we've learned and really rethinking uh, how we see ourselves in the future. And how we see ourselves in the future is radically different, right? Like even the word resilience, people use the word resilience and resilience means bouncing back. And for us, why would we want to bounce back to all the problems that have been imposed on us? Why would we want to bounce back to injustice? We, the word resilience for us is packed. It's a very difficult word to use. And so we prefer resistance and we, we prefer to be thinking about what is it that we have to do with each other now, in community now? Um, how do we uh, change systems, create a different kind of governance? Just transition is a whole new mode of being. But let's continue. In a just solution, the solution serves everyone. Everyone benefits from restoring a healthy relationship to land and community. These solutions are created by and supported by communities that organize and make their own decisions. Whose interests do just solutions not prioritize? Corporate ones. These solutions aren't meant to cater to powerful and wealthy players who contribute and co-create the extractive economy. That's why how we solve the problem is a part of the solution. A just transition to a healthier and more equitable system of living is not the destination, but it is embodied in our values and principles. A great place to start is with the example of energy democracy, one way to put a just transition into practice. Others include things like food sovereignty, agroecology, and just recovery from climate disasters and other crises that impact frontline communities. Energy democracy is a dynamic solution that many frontline communities have been developing for decades to move away from fossil fuel economies and toward local, community-controlled, regenerative ones. It is the ability of communities to uh, determine what their energy system looks like in a way that actually addresses the energy needs of the community uh, the environmental needs of the community, including especially repairing past environmental harm, uh, and uh, the economic needs of the community. Energy democracy, for me, is just simply the people having more control and more choice over how we power our communities. It's us owning our utilities, 
it's us having a say-so in how those utilities invest in our energy um, sources. We visit three communities in Kentucky, Oregon, and New York to explore how they are operationalizing just transition to energy democracy. You'll notice in each case, they do some combination of work that really speaks to the core focus of Climate Justice Alliance. They are fighting the bad, working on policy to change the rules, moving the money to those hit first and worst by environmental injustice, building the bigger we through coalitions and collaboration, changing the story by uplifting community voices and visions, and building the new. That new, in this case, is where energy democracy comes in. So let's dig into how you really bring it to life. For Uprose, Brooklyn's oldest Latino community-based organization, they organized within the community by listening first to what their needs were and then figuring out how to repurpose spaces in their community that could be used to benefit them. And that's exactly how they were able to turn an old Brooklyn Army terminal rooftop into New York City's first cooperatively owned community solar project. This solar park will deliver clean, reliable, and affordable solar energy to the local Sunset Park neighborhood. Elizabeth, who shared her story in the first episode this season, is the executive director of Uprose, and she recalls this experience. You know, there's all these solar panels going uh, going up everywhere, but they don't really benefit communities uh, directly. So it was a big, Keenan, I'm going to say it was a big learning curve, right? Uh, We made a lot of mistakes and we have documented all of those because we want to be able to share our learnings with other communities so that they can hit the ground running. But in the beginning, it was really learning how does, what partners should we have at the table? What are the questions that we should be asking? Uh, How do you get pre-development costs? How do these things get financed? Oh my God, all the financing is coming from people responsible for the extractive economy. How do you get non-extractive funds? Oh, maybe that's not possible, but maybe moving forward, we can figure out those dollars. So many questions. Um, And and it, it took us about three years. And I can tell you honestly that we learned a lot. Uh, Summer Sanzoval, who's our energy democracy coordinator, is the person who who coordinates that project. Uh, And she's literally a whirling dervish when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to energy uh, and utilities and how we do this. But it is now a model that can be replicated throughout the state. And it also shows that frontline communities, even with limited resources, are leading with solutions and that we're literally putting infrastructure on the ground, um, that what we're doing isn't just aspirational, that it's actually operational. When complete, likely in 2023, it will be a 685-kilowatt solar project serving 200 community solar subscribers and small businesses, who not only benefit from the clean energy, but will see savings on their monthly energy bills. But it's just one of many initiatives Uprose is working on. They have also put together a planning proposal for converting the industrial waterfront in Sunset Park, which is the home to polluting industries, into a space zoned for green industry and clean energy. And then we've got this vision for the industrial waterfront, which is called the GRID, uh, which is about the green reindustrialization of the waterfront. Um, and we say that because these industrial sectors have been responsible uh, for harming our community. That's where you find peaker plants. That's where you find incineration, waste transfer stations, all of the infrastructure 
that has served other communities and has harmed ours. But they also keep our communities affordable and make and, and a place to work because it protects the industrial uh, working waterfront. So we had to figure out how do you take uh, the sector that has been engaged in historical harm and how do you shift it uh, so that there's a just transition? And so we've been working really hard uh, to make recommendations and we've been signing a bunch of MOUs to bring in an eco-industrial hub and to bring in the kinds of jobs that don't harm us, but uh, stimulate the economy, provide green jobs, don't um, don't bombard us with emissions, uh, address climate adaptation, mitigation and resiliency. At the same time, they have to fight the bad while building the new. This is a pretty common challenge many environmental justice communities are facing. As you create, experiment, and eventually implement real climate change solutions, you have to fight against existing polluters and new polluters who want to move in. And we did that first by fighting a developer in Sunset Park who came in with the intention of taking the industrial sector and turning it into a high-end destination place for the rich. And that was a fight that took us seven years. And people thought we would lose, but we won. Um, Because when you organize, you win. And what the community was saying at the time when we were fighting this developer is, well, this is the developer's vision. How do we counter that with an alternative vision? And so for seven years, we captured all of what the community was saying they wanted and what their priorities were in community-based planning efforts. And and that's what the GRID is. Uh, The GRID is an homage to community-based and led planning. Uh, So we had an alternative vision. So it wasn't enough to lead by saying, no, this is not good. We needed uh, our elected officials to see that there was something that was not just aspirational, but viable, fundable, and operational. Uh, And so during that time, we also participated in making sure that we were passing legislation that made it possible for resources to be available to make that vision get operationalized, like the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, the Community Mobilization Act in New York City, a different number of different pieces of legislation that would uh, provide resources to make a vision like that uh, come to fruition. So it's a lot of work, it's a lot of different pieces, but it was all community-led. And so there's a level of sophistication and deep knowledge and community that often those who are, who engage in what I call savior behavior, (laughs) I made that up, I think about two weeks ago. I think I'm gonna stick with that one. It's gonna gonna trend. Savior behavior. There are lots of well-meaning people who want to help, but aren't a part of the community they're trying to help and come in with conscious or unconscious bias, believing they know better than the people who are most directly affected by the issue. While the climate crisis requires all hands on deck, the grassroots must lead. That's an important facet of just transition. One of the just transition principle states, just transition upholds self-determination. That's a common thread through all the work. It's all community led. The Oregon Just Transition Alliance, another CJA member, designed a clean energy economic solution that's not at the expense of low-income residents. They work on or they um, institute a just transition away from fossil fuels for Oregon while actually protecting low-income ratepayers and while making sure that energy does not become more expensive. 
Uh, and that's entirely the reverse approach from carbon pricing because what carbon pricing seeks to do uh, is it makes fossil energy or energy you know generated from fossil fuels more expensive and in doing so it uh, proposes to set up an economic incentive for people to switch away from fossil fuels but what it also does is it actually imposes the burden of adjustment in a regressive way on people who can least afford it because obviously if you are low income you will have a harder time paying for uh, more expensive energy bills or paying for more expensive gas and you will also have a harder time buying an expensive electric car or installing solar panels on your roof because you likely don't own your house you're likely to be a renter and you know you're you know unlikely to be able to afford the expense of solar panels anyway even with some of the tax credits available even if you did own your home so the carbon pricing approach you know imposes the burden of adjustment on people who cannot afford it and it's you know regressive in that sense while the approach taken by the Oregon Just Transition Alliance is exactly the reverse it is imposing costs on polluting industries you know making them shoulder the burden of the costs for an energy transition while actually protecting communities from increases in utility rates the Oregon Just Transition Alliance called this most recent campaign the Clean Energy Opportunity Campaign. In June 2021, when it passed, it became the first frontline-led statewide campaign in Oregon's history, made up of a strong coalition of rural and urban frontline community members, community-based organizations, ally environmental organizations, and lawmakers. Together, they passed three groundbreaking laws. 100% clean energy for all energy affordability, and the Healthy Homes Act. This all comes on the heels of the Portland Clean Energy Fund, which many of the same communities and organizers helped pass a few years back. It was the first people of color-led environmental measure to include a 1% licensing fee that aims to generate over $30 million a year in revenue, which the fund then mobilizes to advance environmental justice and public health efforts in the city. That's an example of changing the rules. And buen vivir or living well. Just transition moves us to live well without living better at the expense of others. It equitably redistributes resources and power. For another example of energy democracy, we go to Kentucky with Casa, who you heard earlier in this episode. She's the immediate past chair of Kentuckians for the Commonwealth and a co-founder of the Louisville Association for Community Economics and the Louisville Community Grocery. My name is Cassa Heron, and I'm a proud Kentuckian. I was born and raised in Richmond, Kentucky, which is a community in central Kentucky, just south of Lexington, if people have heard of the University of, of Kentucky. I call Louisville my home now here in Jefferson County, which is the largest city uh, in Kentucky. And I identify as an abolitionist. I've been trained as a community organizer, and I do work as an urban planner and a writer. If you don't know Kentucky, Casa paints a picture for us. Kentucky is a very complex place. We wear a lot of different identities. And as much as I love my home, I often say that we're divided by race, class, 
geography and basketball. <laughs> and there are so many other things that uh, connect us. Kentucky is a beautiful place. There are rolling hills. There are, you know, bluegrass. The, the limestone in our water helps to give off this blue is um, kind of, I think, overestimated. But this blue hue um, on a grass, particularly in central Kentucky, which is where we get the bluegrass name. It's beautiful here in the spring and the fall. Lots of trees changing colors. It smells like the country. It smells like fresh air. In some some places, in other places, there's a stench that smells like heavy industry and you have no clue what's in the air. The sun shines bright <laughs> is a, a phrase that's in our our state song, and that's true. You hear cicadas and you hear the ambulance. You see kids walking down the street and you see folks that struggle with drugs um, throughout our, com- our communities. It's a place where people walk and bike and people drive cars and people tend to their, their lawns and their gardens. It's a place like many other places, and it's also a place that's a lot different. Casa started in food sovereignty which is ownership over our food systems. She joined the Community Farm Alliance just out of college and helped pass a bill that redistributed money from a tobacco settlement to diversify its agricultural products. Historically, Kentucky has been the leading producer of tobacco. She first encountered Kentuckians for the Commonwealth when she was looking for her community. So I knew about KFTC. I didn't know the breadth of the work that KFTC was engaged in. I initially got involved with the organization largely because I wanted to talk to Louisville people about Black Kentuckians outside of the city. Again, when I came to the city, people, you know, had bad things to say and continue to have bad things to say about rural Kentuckians. And people wanted to to make me different. Well, you're you're a little different. And I was like, well, but I still have family in Richmond. I still have family and friends in, in Lexington. And so I first connected with KFTC um, to host a cultural sharing event where we really raised um, the profile and highlighted the culture of, of Black Kentuckians outside of the city and really helped um, to make those connections. That was my first entree into working with KTC. And then in 2016 um, was um, a big change for me. There were two things that really brought me closer to working with KTC. The first was that we ran a Democratic candidate in Allison Lundergan Grimes, who is around the same age as me. We have share the same birthday month and, and year in November. And she lost pretty badly to Senator Mitch McConnell, um, who is still our senator, who's been our senator since probably I was six or so. And she lost pretty badly. And I knew that KFTC was working on voter education and 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 getting the vote out. I just knew that. And then the other thing that happened was that our legislature decided that we weren't con- going to comply with the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act simply said Americans have to do something different in the way in which we power our country. And the federal government said, hey, hey states, send us your plan. And con- the Kentucky legislature said, we're not going to put together a plan. We're going to continue to act like um, coal is going to continue to power our states. I thought that was the silliest thing ever because of what I'd spent, you know, 10 or 15 years looking at what we had done in our agricultural industry when we saw that um, NAFTA was changing the face of agriculture. It was changing how how we exchange goods that we needed to re 
orient our agriculture economy um, towards local and regional food systems and that we were making that investment and that we were trying to democratize our food system. It didn't make sense to me that we weren't going to do that with our energy economy. How does this work lead to energy democracy? When Casa started her work at KFTC, she didn't know many of the details on energy. And I knew nothing about energy, really, <laughs> other than like we should have control over it. And so I connected with KFTC and we decided that we were going to put together our own plan and we called it the Empower Kentucky Plan. And we hosted um, public meetings in each of the six congressional districts across the state. And we brought people together, of course, around food and around good music. And we had table conversations about what our utility bills look like and how cool it would be to have solar panels and how we needed new windows and new doors so that we weren't spending so much money um, on our utility bills and how we wanted um, trains, to, uh, rail to connect Kentucky uh, communities and how people just really needed access to better ways to get around. And so we had those conversations and we hired um, some really smart consultants <laughs> to talk to us about what it would look like for Kentucky to have a more diverse energy portfolio. And we published the Empower Kentucky Plan. And that was how I got involved um, with KFTC. According to KFTC, the Empower Kentucky Plan is a homegrown effort to shape a people's energy plan one that works for all of us. The plan is loaded with practical steps Kentucky can take to create jobs, improve health, ensure affordable energy, support a just transition, advance equity, and protect our climate. Through all the organizing and deep relationship with community that is central to this energy democracy journey, a lot of lessons can be learned from those on the ground doing the work. I think two lessons, two things that are leading my organizing that hasn't been at the center always. I would say three things. <laughs> One is really leading with love and compassion. You know, as I said earlier, Kentuckians are, are divided a lot and there are few and far opportunities. I would say secondly that I've learned is that there are always gonna be bad things to fight against. There's always gonna be something that you don't like, that you don't wanna see happen. What is few and far between is the opportunity to really fight for the things that you want to see happen. There was some change in my, I, I know what it was, it was it was fighting a Walmart development in, in my community and, and not saying that we didn't want Walmart. I didn't want Walmart, but the community wanted Walmart. But what we wanted Walmart, if the community was gonna have Walmart, we wanted Walmart to build to the standards and we wanted Walmart to build a nice store. And out of that, out of that fight, what I learned is that we've got to lead with vision we have to say what we want and we have to make the vision plain and we have to make it clear and we have to make sure that other people share that vision. And as we're fighting the bad stuff, we've got to uplift the good things and we've got to create the new system and the new institutions. We've got all these old institutions that have been built on white supremacy and some of them can be changed. Many of them will have to end and we've got to create new things in its place. And we can't do that if we're not leading with love and compassion if we don't have vision. And then lastly, um, I've been committed to having fun. <laughs> I've been committing to dancing and singing. Ashley uh, Woodard at the Highland Center says that if we can't sing together, we can't get free together. And I've added dancing because I love to dance. I love live music. Uh, Kentuckians make great music um, of all genres. <laughs> 
And so I tell us that if we can't sing and dance together, then we can't get free together. We would all do well to heed Casa's recommendations here. Joy is so important as we build the new and continue to fight the bad. And we know there is still so much more to do, especially in the coming years. So what's ahead? I think that we are in a total transition um, across the world, that we're at a reset. And I think we've got this last chance to have a good reset if we're going to have future generations that are going to be healthier uh, than we are. We have a country that has been organized around capitalism. And simply capitalism prioritizes profits. It prioritizes this currency that means that people's needs are not the priority. And so I think that where we are is that we have to reverse that vision. We have to change who and what is at the center of our choices. And if we own, if we have power over, if we have control over our energy consumption and how we power our communities, that means that we're gonna make choices that center our environment, that center people, and that it's not about companies making money, mostly for old white men. That has to be a realization that we share collectively across the country so that we then put different people at the table so that we make different choices. It's going to take us all being in formation or at least, you know, the 99% of us to be in formation to be able to turn the ship around um, to set us on a new course. Thanks for tuning in. This is Stories from Home. Next episode, we'll talk about how we get in formation with building cultural power for climate justice through art, creativity, and storytelling in the movement. Stories from Home is a production of the Climate Justice Alliance, featuring me, your host, Keenan Rhodes, story editors Jessica Zhao and Olivia Burlingame, sound editing by Elijah Pogues, and music by Monica Atkins, a.k.a. Surreal. The title of the track is Love Black Warrior. To learn more about Climate Justice Alliance, visit climatejusticealliance.org.